Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is turning behavioral insights into alpha and is for the institutional and professional investors. I'm Paul Schutz, a client portfolio manager in the International Equity Group at JP Morgan Asset Management, and with me today is Nicholas Horn, co-chief investment officer of the International Behavioral Finance Equity Group, JP Morgan Asset Management, and Dennis Rule, chief investment officer, US Behavioral Finance Equity Group, JP Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Great. Without further ado, then, let's get into uh, some of today's key questions, which uh, we're receiving from different clients. What is behavioral finance? Nick, why don't you address that? I think the best way to understand behavioral finance is to contrast it a little bit with traditional finance. So behavioral finance seeks to understand why financial markets do not behave in the way we might expect based on rational economic theory, which underpins traditional finance. If you look at traditional finance, it tends to make a lot of strong assumptions about how investors do behave. For example, it assumes they tend to be rational and that prices have no memory. And also that prices instantaneously reflect all available information. And so they're not saying that every investor is rational, but importantly, that investors are collectively rational and they're able to arbitrage so the market becomes efficiently priced. And the only source of return that should be rewarded is systematic risk. Now, behavioral finance takes a different approach. It looks at how people actually behave. So it starts from the assumption of not that investors are rational, but that they depart from rationality in systematic and repeatable ways. And this leads to very different conclusions for market behavior. So what we see is that prices in due tend to have a memory, they can over and underreact to information. And importantly, from an investing perspective, systematic risk is not the only source of systematic return in the markets. And by focusing on these repeated departures from rationality, it's a way for investors to generate alpha from these insights. And so, Dennis, perhaps let's get your thoughts. How does behavior impact investment decisions? Sure. Building on what Nick said, we think that markets in the end of the day are really driven by human emotions and behavioral finance, not by rational finance. And I think the clearest illustration of that is just looking at the equity market themselves. Rational finance suggests that you should buy when markets are low and sell when markets are high because that's when they're cheap and expensive. But whether you look at fund flows versus market levels or whether you look at are markets high when consumer confidence is high or high when consumer confidence is low, what you generally find is that people are buying when they feel good about things and when they feel confident and when essentially they're feeling greedy and they're selling at market bottoms when they're scared, when they're feeling fearful. And that's what's really driving market behavior, both at an overall market level and at a stock level. And it's one of the reasons why understanding behavioral finance is so important, because one of the best ways to make money is to do the exact opposite of that. So one 
of my favorite quotes in behavioral finance is from Warren Buffett, who does not describe himself as a behavioral finance guy, but we think is at the end of the day. He said the way to make money in markets is to be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. And we think that's the exact essence of the matter and really touches on how behavioral finance impacts markets. Thank you, Dennis. You raised some good points there. So perhaps, Nick, do you see overconfidence playing a role in investment decisions? Absolutely. I think overconfidence is pervasive in the investment community. So some of the biases that people suffer from is an illusion of control and illusion of superiority. There's a famous study that 90% of U.S. drivers think they're better than average at driving, which, of course, can't be the case. This gives rise to an overconfidence effect, and we see that play out in a few ways. One is trading excessively, but the other, and I think more important, is on risk management. So whether you see funds that have excessively concentrated portfolios or you see excessive leverage in certain funds, you know, I think those are manifestations of overconfidence. And from a behavioral finance perspective, in terms of our investment process, We try to really avoid that through being disciplined on the risk management side. So when we construct portfolios, we always pay attention to the risk we're taking, and that feeds through to position sizing, ensuring there's sufficient diversification within the portfolio. Essentially, we try not to fall in love with any one position and let any one decision drive too much of the risk of our funds. So at JP Morgan, in the behavioral finance investment teams, we focus on three particular styles, value, quality, and momentum. Nick and Dennis, of what do you think are the behavioral biases that drive these? Nick, why don't you address value? And then Dennis, perhaps, if you want to cover quality and momentum. We think value is primarily driven by a phenomenon we call representativeness bias. And essentially what that is, is That's confusing what sounds like a good story and what looks like a good company for being a good investment. And time and time again, we see that the two are not necessarily the same thing. And essentially what this arises from is the way people reason is by analogy and through stories, it's through narrative mechanisms, as opposed to looking at base rates and what's statistically more likely. So This leads investors to look at a company where the story's good and it's been growing very fast to extrapolate that growth rate too far into the future. And ultimately, you tend to get a lot of mean reversion in the growth rates. And so by avoiding stocks that are systematically expensive and owning companies that are systematically cheap, that's proven to be a very reliable source of return premium. In addition to that behavioral bias, there's another element that comes into the play, particularly when you look at institutional asset management, where as an industry, we manage other people's capital for end investors. And there's a lot of agency considerations about buying a company where the story isn't good, even if you think it's cheap, something might ultimately go wrong with that company and you may look stupid in front of your investors and they might pull the capital because they're judging you on the end results rather than was that strategy a good strategy to pursue going forward. It's really driven by a combination of the behavioral biases, both by the investors themselves and by the ultimate allocators of the capital. 
In terms of quality and momentum, I'll talk about quality first. When we think about quality, one of the most important aspects for us is management teams. When we look at management teams, the behavioral bias they're most prone to is overconfidence. So a study out of Sweden actually looked at confidence levels for every single occupation and found that CEOs are by far the most overconfident people. Probably not a huge shock to anyone, but an important insight nonetheless. If you look back over the past few years and you think about the oil companies, for instance, in 2014, buying up every lease in sight, drilling every well in sight, if you think about Microsoft acquiring all of Nokia and then writing off almost the entire thing like a year and a half later, management overconfidence can destroy a tremendous amount of shareholder value. To avoid that, we really look for conservative management teams that are making conservative capital deployment decisions so they're not falling into their own overconfidence about every merger being a good idea, about every project having a high ROI. And as well, we look for management teams with very conservative accounting practices who aren't overconfident in the strength of their results. On the momentum side, there are a number of different anomalies that drive momentum, but the one we think about most is the anchoring anomaly. What the anchoring anomaly says is if you have a belief and you receive new information, you will revise your belief in the direction of that new information, but not by as much as you should. So let's say you're having an argument about sports teams and what the best baseball team was ever. You make your case, your friend tells you a negative data point about the team that you were pushing. You'll sort of think a little bit worse about them, but not by as much as you should based on the actual information in that data point. And where we see this a lot in markets is really on company analyst earnings estimates. And so, Companies tend to have sell-side analysts that follow them. They have earnings estimates that they publish. When new news comes out on a company, analysts will revise their estimates in the direction of that uh, new news, but never by as much as they should. And so if their estimate is at 50 cents and their new news should be pushing them to 70, maybe they'll go to 60 or 63 or something like that. And that sort of anchoring creates trends and momentum within markets. A fantastic example is a company, Philips Van Heusen. They make the dress shirts that you own. Analysts have had a trend of systematically underestimating how important their international segment is. So although their U.S. domestic segment has struggled, each quarter their international segment puts up better results, and this company winds up beating estimates, and analysts are always revising higher, but they never quite catch up because of the anchoring anomaly. So that's the one that we think is the biggest in momentum, but there are certainly a number of others in both value, quality, and momentum. If we've seen that investors and computers can identify and avoid the typical pitfalls that investors fall into, do we anticipate that these pitfalls will start to disappear going forward into the future, or do we think they're too ingrained in the average investor behavior for these pitfalls to be avoided? Nick, what's your view on that? These pitfalls have been around a long time, and behavioral finance, although I think it's gained more prominence in the popular media over the last few years, has really been around since the 70s. So it's certainly not a new field. A lot of these findings and anomalies and biases have been researched going back 20, 30 years, but yet we still see investors repeating these habits. And I think it just goes back to the point that it's hard to change bad habits, whether that's investing, whether that's lifestyle decisions. A lot of people still smoke despite being told it was bad for their health for a very long time. 
So I don't think the advent of a lot of new computing power or new financial products is necessarily going to change the behavior. If anything, I think the proliferation of new products is going to give investors more ability to engage in some of these pitfalls. So for example, I was on the underground the other day and noticed an advert for a fund of cryptocurrencies. Now, we all know Bitcoin is performing very well. It seems to be a hot, trendy thing. Now, surely some people are going to buy that just because it it seems like the thing to pile into, not on the basis of rational economic analysis. So ultimately, I don't think human behavior is going to change anytime soon. I agree with what Nick said, and I'd actually focus on a couple words that he said early on, popular media. When I think about kind of both social media and the traditional media, I just think the degree of sensationalism and really clickbait, let's say, in news stories about the financial markets has gone up dramatically. So when I watch the typical TV channels, and I'm not going to name call anyone, but the typical TV channels that cover financial markets, or I read about financial markets in the popular press, the degree of sensationalism and the headlines that scream, you know, the latest market downturn is about to start, 50% fall imminent, all of that sort of stuff. I think that actually raises the importance of these behavioral anomalies. And I think in many ways stands to make them bigger than they've been historically, not smaller. So while there's certainly pressure in both towards people arbitraging these out, I think there's also pressure in the direction of some things that are changing, that are moving to make them bigger. You know, at the end of the day, we think the fact that these anomalies continue to show up in markets, both in our own work and in the academic literature, is really the biggest reason why you should look to active instead of passive. There's a lot of debate about that whole topic. If these anomalies start to get arbitraged out and the markets are completely efficient, then yeah, maybe passive makes some sense. But all the data we see and kind of what we see on human behavior and the way the world is changing suggests they continue to be quite prominent. And that's one of the big reasons that we continue to believe in the strength of active management for the future. Thanks, Dennis. Let's take that a stage further. And what are the particular strategies that you employ in your investment process to avoid these emotional decisions that others are making? Yeah, you know, when we think about behavioral finance, it's very much the why behind our investment process, both the why we focus on value, quality, momentum, as well as the why we've designed our investment process the way we have. And so we spend a lot of time trying to eliminate the risk of our own behavioral biases from our process. So I think there are three basic things that we think about in that. The first is having rules for how we invest. We find that if we come up with a set of rules or a playbook, if you will, for how we're going to both invest in general and also how we're going to respond to market downturns, how we're going to respond to maybe a stock that we own having a very bad performance. If we have that playbook in advance and then when the time comes, we follow that playbook in a disciplined way, it really helps us avoid our own emotions and avoid our own behavioral biases. And more importantly, in general, trying to make sure that we don't make our own investment decisions when we're feeling heavily influenced by emotions. People talk about not going to the grocery store and not ordering from a restaurant when you're hungry. This is the exact same thing. You shouldn't be making a buy or sell decision on a stock when you're annoyed at the management team or you're over the moon about their great results or you're fearing horrible because the market is falling apart. That is absolutely the worst time. And so sticking with your playbook 
and taking yourself to the sideline if you become emotional are two of our big things. I'd say the third thing is really trying to have a healthy investment dialogue within the team, understanding when there's a risk that you as an investor might be compromised by your own emotions and turning to someone else on your team or someone else whose opinion you trust and saying, hey, this is the decision I'm thinking about. Can you talk me through it? And in particular, if you can find someone who you think will disagree with your view, that's usually even more of an acid test and really helps you avoid your own behavioral biases. I think Dennis raises some very good points there. You know, one thing we see that's a very common pitfall people fall into is when they seek out additional information, they're really just trying to seek out information that confirms their original view. They want that confirmation bias, but actually you're much better served by trying to actively seek out information that would go against whatever your original view was. So by building in some of these steps into your process, that can help you avoid some of the pitfalls. And the other thing I'd sort of echo in terms of how we've structured our investment process is just the importance of discipline. And by focusing on research and focusing on the evidence, what we've tried to do is structure our investment process in a way where our default behavior is likely to be the right decision. And we only deviate from that when we have very good grounds to do so in a limited perspective. So rather than defaulting to the emotional suboptimal behavior, we try to default ourselves to what's ultimately going to be best in terms of generating alpha. And I think that the best quote when it comes to investing comes from Ben Graham. And he said, the investor's chief problem, even his worst enemy, is likely to be himself. We just think that's really true. And by being disciplined in your approach, you can avoid a lot of these pitfalls. How do you differentiate behavioral finance from a traditional active or research-based strategy? Yeah, so it's a good question. When we think about most traditional active strategies, they tend to be very much focused on a certain investing technique, be that fundamental investing or quantitative investing. In behavioral finance, we're much more focused on behavioral anomalies. So what we're focused on really is value, quality, and momentum. And that, at the end of the day, is what drives our investment process. Because we're so focused and so centric on those behavioral anomalies, it really opens us up to use investing processes across the space. So as opposed to most traditional investment processes, which are pure fundamental or pure quant, our behavioral finance processes actually tend to be a combination of quantitative techniques and fundamental or qualitative techniques, all really focused around the idea of identifying value, quality, and momentum as accurately and robustly as we can. And so that really opens some power for us in that we think that both fundamental and quantitative investing have strengths and weaknesses, and we're able to combine them in a way that really emphasizes the strengths of both and downplays the weaknesses. So we really focus on the quantitative investing for efficiency and emotional discipline and breadth. And then we look to the qualitative or fundamental investing for more depth and deep research insights on individual stocks that we own. And so by having the behavioral philosophy oriented to value, quality, momentum, we're really able to shoehorn both quantitative and fundamental techniques into our process and benefit from having what we think is the best of both worlds. 
Behavioural finance has evolved over time, so that obviously data availability has changed as well as further information around the science itself. What's next on the horizon? Uh, Nick, what's your thoughts? I'll take that one in two turns. I mean, if you look at the theory, I think that is still advancing. So you're starting to get to a more coherent set of theories as opposed to really different ones. Some of the cutting-edge work in that area now is being done by Nick Barbaris at Yale. And basically, what they're doing is they're hooking up traders to MRI machines and doing controlled studies to really link in the behavior in those trading simulations to which parts of the brains are being activated to try to really link in what is it in particular that leads to some of these cognitive biases. So that's an interesting area of cutting-edge research in the academic world. On the more practical perspective, I think the most exciting thing at the moment is the advent of new and unstructured data sets that can help us better sort of understand certain areas where markets are getting irrational or where certain stocks are likely to be mispriced. One example of that that we've been doing some work on is looking at applying natural language processing to text data. So the idea there is by sort of analyzing some of the tone and the sentiment of corporate communications, can you help to sort of generate signals as to where the earnings and fundamentals are likely to go and ultimately the stock prices should follow? Thanks for that, Nick. And Dennis, Nick mentions of the advent of information. How do you think the big data will affect behavioral finance and more broadly the investment community? When we think about big data, there's a number of different approaches underneath that, both natural language processing, which Nick talked about, as well as unstructured data, so things from images, sound, video, and as well as other sorts of data sets like transactional data provided by various vendors who sit at the intersection of different parts of the economy. When I think about it from a behavioral finance perspective, our core belief in value, quality, and momentum and investor behavior is something that we've maintained over a long time and something that we don't envision changing. But the proxies are ways that we measure value, quality, and momentum. And the ways that we attempt to assess these things have always evolved over time. And for us, in many ways, big data represents the next logical step in that evolution. As Nick said, we're focusing first primarily on natural language processing, and there are a lot of very promising anomalies there. To talk about one as an interesting one, if you look at a company's K or Q, so their quarterly or annual filing, it's a very long technical document that people understandably have a bias not to change period to period because of inertia bias, or frankly, that it's a lot of work to do so. So if you look at changes in the K or Q period over period, and particularly if you find that they're in the risk factors section, it means that someone felt they had to change this or else there was a risk they were going to get sued. And so that, as you might imagine, is usually a negative signal for a company. So that sort of stuff, which is really falling into behavioral biases, falls into management quality fairly cleanly. The big data stuff just gives us a new way of looking at and measuring value, quality, and momentum. You know, when I think about what it means for the finance industry broadly, I think that investors across disciplines 
are going to have to incorporate big data into their approaches. I think they increasingly are, although I will note to date, in my view, there's probably a good bit more sound and fury than actual action on that point broadly within the industry. I do think that it is a space where processes that have a quantitative element are gonna naturally have an advantage because they're just gonna be a bit more comfortable looking at and processing and understanding how these techniques work and understanding how one can incorporate the output of these techniques into their investment process. The thing I would add to that is I agree with Dennis in the sense that I think with the advent of big data, it will be important for the investment industry generally. And if I look at that in terms of who's going to be best placed to take advantage of it in their investment processes, I do think that the approaches like the behavioral finance approach where you're used to taking a very sort of disciplined view across a lot of stocks using both quantitative and qualitative analysis it's going to be very complementary in that type of investment approach. I think the more sort of traditional investment processes are going to have a bit more work to do to try to bridge that gap in terms of using information that's quite different from what they've been using historically. And uh, finally, as we get towards the end of the podcast, do you see the current behavioral biases in today's market? Nick, perhaps you'd like to address that one. I think when you're in a market environment where there hasn't been a lot of top-line growth over the last few years, that's improving recently, but historically growth's been a bit muted in the post-crisis environment. And that's led to investors really being willing to pay very lofty valuations for any companies that seem like they have a good secular growth story. In particular, investors always love new technologies. One area of this that I see in the market where valuations are starting to look a bit frothy is in some of the electric car manufacturers, for example, without naming names. Investors time and time again get over-enthusiastic about new technologies, whether it was the tech bubble more recently or going back to a much further example, British railway mania in the 1840s, whenever a new sort of paradigmatic technology takes over, People are willing to extrapolate growth rates much farther than they should, and ultimately trees don't grow to the sky, and sometimes these valuations can just get a bit crazy. Yeah, I'd agree with a lot of what Nick said. We certainly see a similar bias within the states in terms of some of the areas of technology involving the internet, electric cars, etc., where there's a lot of uncertainty about what the future holds. And one of the things that we see in behavioral finance is in conditions of uncertainty, people tend to produce what's called a hurting behavior. The simple example of this is if you see a bunch of people, if you're walking down the street and you see suddenly a crowd of 100 people running the other way, you probably don't know why they're running the other way, but your natural instinct is going to be to start running with them and to start going, uh-oh, what should I be worried about there? You see that hurting behavior both positively and negatively, and we think that you're starting to see a lot of it both in the electric car area that Nick mentioned and also broadly within the retail area. Look, certainly we believe in the power of internet retail, and we think that that's a real thing. There's no question about that. But when you look 
look at what's starting to be implied in valuations about the success those companies are going to have and kind of the amount of bandwagoning and jumping on to those stories that's happened, it really feels fairly extreme to us. So that's one area. The second area we'd say is really the continued high valuation of what we call the bond proxy names. So names that are fairly stable and tend to have high yields. Look, there's a principle in behavioral finance that investors feel the pain of a loss well more than twice the pleasure of a gain. We think that's very true. And when you look at 2001 and 2008, those events and the sharp market declines are still very much in the minds of investors, we think. And it's contributing to this extreme attraction and overvaluation of safe, stable names in what is fundamentally a fairly good economy and fairly good market where we don't think there should be that sort of premium for safety. To give you a concrete example, we see the premium for safety or bond proxies trading at nearly as expensive a valuation versus the market as they did in the bottom of the 2008 crash, which just seems crazy to us. So that's another area where we think behavioral finance and that fear of loss is really driving a big dislocation in the market. Thank you uh, both Nick and Dennis for joining us today on Insights and giving us your thoughts around what's happening in the marketplace with particular reference to behavioral finance theory. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. If you have feedback to provide, please submit feedback on our website. Recorded on August the 23rd, 2017. The company and stock names mentioned in this podcast are not to be interpreted as a recommendation to buy or sell. The use of the above companies is in no way an endorsement for JP Morgan Asset Management Investment Management Services. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. 
in Hong Kong by JF Asset Management Limited or JP Morgan Funds Asia Limited or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited in Singapore by JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited co-reg number 197601586k or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited co-reg number 20112355e in Taiwan by JP Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited in Japan by JP Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association Japan the Japan Investment Advisors Association Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau Financial Instruments Firm number 330 in Korea by JP Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited in Australia to wholesale clients only as defined in section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001 CTH by JP Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited ABN 5514383280 AFSL 376919 in Brazil by Banco JP Morgan SA in Canada for institutional clients use only by JP Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated and in the United States by JP Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and JP Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated both members of FINRA SIPC and JP Morgan Investment Management Incorporated in APAC distribution is for Hong Kong Taiwan Japan and Singapore for all other countries in APAC to intended recipients only copyright 2017 JP Morgan Chase and Company all rights reserved